Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. Today, we are talking about Alec Baldwin's interview, Alec Baldwin, unscripted, with George Stephanopoulos. Um, Just right out the gate, I think this is highly ill-advised, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to go through some clips of what he said, talk about not only my impressions of it, but also what this could mean for future cases, both the pending civil cases, future civil cases, the criminal case that's still under investigation, all all the things, all the things. So you'll have to let me know how you like the format from today's episode. And we should really just get right into it. It's a lot to talk about. I'll do a brief road so far about this case, the lawsuits that have been filed, but it will be brief. And then we'll really lean heavily into the interview. I've got to say, I came away from this interview disliking Alec Baldwin um, much more than I did prior to the interview. So I don't know if the interview was intended. Well, I'll tell you what I think about it, but I don't know. Was it intended to be a a PR plea for everybody to stop holding him responsible for being the one that held the gun that fired and killed the, you know, director of cinematography, Helena Hutchins? Maybe that's what it was, but I came along, I came out of it um, with a very strong dislike for Alec Baldwin. So that being what it is, I am still going to tell you kind of the legal, the legal stuff doesn't really matter. My feelings don't matter to it, but that's how, that's how I came out feeling about it. So we're going to talk about it. So we should just get right into it. Hey there. Welcome to the Emily show. I'm your host, Emily D Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Before we get all the way into it, we do have a sponsor for today's podcast. It's that time of the year when not only are holiday parties coming up for the first time in a few years, it feels like, but we've also got this whole like, new year, new me. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, but if your new year, new me includes wearing pants again, I've got you. I've got you because beta brand makes the most incredible pants. They are dress pants and denim that also has yoga stretch. So they are the perfect transition from I live in leggings to I want to feel put together and live in the real world again. And I absolutely love them. I have loved seeing all of the feedback from the law nerds that have tried the beta brand pants and are like, Emily, you guys are in my DMs and I love it. Emily, I used your code. I bought these pants. I absolutely love them. The amount of messages I've gotten is just heartwarming. And I'm so glad because they make me feel good. They are size inclusive. And I know that so many of you feel good wearing them too, because look, we don't need pants that are constricting. Nobody has time for that. And you know what else we need? We need pockets, lots of pockets. And Beta Brand has pants that have pockets that I can actually fit my giant ass cell phone into and and my giant ass into too. <laughs> I said size inclusive. We absolutely love these pants. I love how they make me feel when I wear them. And I think that you will enjoy them too. So find out why women are ditching typical work pants for Beta Brands dress pant yoga pants. You can get your 30% off discount 
on your beta brand order when you go to betabrand.com slash Emily. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot com slash Emily for 30% off your order for a limited time. And when you use my special URL, you're supporting the Emily show too. So go to betabrand.com slash Emily for 30% off. And if you get a pair, let me know what you think. I can't wait to hear. And you might be in for a surprise when you order because I've been hearing about that from all of you too. I don't want to ruin the surprise for people who haven't ordered yet. So I'm not going to tell you, but thank you, Beta Brand. It's a pleasure working with you for this episode of The Emily Show. I think it's important to start with kind of some foundation for where we are and a brief road so far with regard to the Rust shooting. The Rust shooting happened October 21st, 2021 on the film set of the movie Rust. The director of cinematography, Helena Hutchins, was fatally wounded, was killed by that by that bullet. Now we know is a bullet fired from the gun that Alec Baldwin was holding. And we will get into all of the ins and outs of that in just a little bit. The director of the movie, Joel Souza, was also injured by the bullet after it exited Helena Hutchins and hit him in the shoulder. It was recovered from his shoulder, which is how law enforcement knows it was in fact a live round because they recovered the bullet or the the expended bullet from Joel Souza. With that, there have now been two lawsuits that have been filed. There will likely be more civil lawsuits that are filed, including one from Helena Hutchins' husband um, on behalf of potentially him and their son. That has not been filed yet, but I anticipate it will be. It's also something Alec Baldwin talked about in this interview with George Stephanopoulos. And it seems, and it's always hard to tell with interviews because they are cut and there are a few jump cuts, like real quick cuts in this interview. But it seems that Baldwin brought the civil lawsuits up on his own. But once again, you never know with the way things are edited, but it definitely was on the top of mind and he had quite a lot to say about it, I thought. So with those lawsuits, the criminal investigation, civil lawsuits, the criminal investigation is also still pending. We've talked about potential criminal liability in past episodes that will, of course, be linked because going through, again, what these unintentional or negligent homicides look like, the statute that we went through for New Mexico really lays it out pretty clearly if there's criminal negligence or not. And determining criminal negligence is just going to go along with these, uh, with the criminal investigation. Things that were said by Alec Baldwin may change that investigation. And I will be talking about that as we get into his interview, because I think that there are a few things that he said that could actually change the analysis, depending on what he told uh, police when they interviewed him. Now, of course, if this is if this interview with Stephanopoulos is just in line with what he already told police, then maybe nothing really changes because the police already had this information. This is new information to the public. If this is new information to the police, then it might change their analysis. I guess I should be I should be more precise in in how I say that. So it really we don't know what he's told police yet. We know that multiple search warrants have been served and that it's ongoing. And we know that the DA has issued a statement after this interview went out indicating that we have not ruled anything out. They said everything at this point, including criminal charges, is on the table. And that's in response to some of the things. Baldwin said in this interview, including that he didn't think that he would be criminally charged, you know, based on those on the inside. But we'll get to the the 
the hubris of it all, the hubris of it all. But we have to start with the beginning, which is the first interview Alec Baldwin gave. And at that point, I said, this is a bad idea. And Alec Baldwin just doubled down on this being a good idea in his mind. For those of you listening on audio, this first clip comes from page six. It's that roadside interview that Baldwin gave to paparazzi. It seems that the paparazzi were from the well-known paparazzi firm Backgrid. Um, we've talked about them in, uh, in other content, but today we're just using this interview. This is Alec Baldwin on a roadside in Vermont uh, with his wife, Helena Hutchins, standing there um, with a somewhat aggressive face holding her camera at the paparazzi. Like, if you're filming us, we're filming you. And that's where we find this statement. They're like, can you just tell us what's going on? And Alec Baldwin says this. I want to know. All right, Alec, what's the current state of what's going on with the case? I'm not allowed to make any comments because it's an ongoing investigation. I've been ordered by the sheriff's department in Santa Fe. I can't answer any questions about the investigation. I can't. So it's very interesting because he says, I can't make any comments. It's an ongoing investigation. I've been ordered not to make any comments about the investigation. And I wonder if in his mind, the comments that he made then and continue to make are not about the investigation, but they are about the incident. And if they said, please just don't speak about the incident, um, he, he has, and he does make comments about the investigation in the interview with George Stephanopoulos. Let's continue with the rest of that thought from Alec Baldwin. I can't. It's an active investigation in terms of a woman dying. She was my friend. She was my friend. The day I arrived in Santa Fe to start shooting, I took her to dinner with Joel, the director. We were a very, very, excuse me, we were a very, very, you know, well-oiled crew shooting a film together, and then this horrible event happened. And that's where I'm going to stop that. But it's interesting because he definitely backs off the I was her friend. In the Stephanopoulos interview, it becomes clear that he had just met Helena that night when they went together to dinner. It was not that he flew in and took an old friend to dinner. That's the first time that they met, which is not how it's made to sound at this roadside interview that was given on November first, 2021. He also says, I can't talk about it. And then proceeds to not do anything other than talk about it. There are two pending lawsuits, more to come, and an open criminal investigation. Sitting down with George Stephanopoulos and ABC News to give a full interview about the details of this event seems like a terrible plan that no lawyer would ever say, yeah, let's do this. This is great. But I think that this shows a lot about Alec Baldwin as an individual and Alec Baldwin's, I don't know, tolerance for discomfort because he makes it very clear at the beginning of the Stephanopoulos interview, and we're going to listen to it in his own words, why he is sitting down to do this. This clip that I am sharing next is from the beginning of the ABC interview with George Stephanopoulos interviewing Alec Baldwin about the Rust shooting. It is very telling, I think, how Alec Baldwin describes why he is speaking up now. However, I think that it is um, selfish. Yep, that's what I think it is. Totally do. It is, it is a selfish reason. I would love to know what you think, but let's look at why Alec Baldwin decided to give this interview. Alec, thank you for doing this. You, you haven't said much in public since that tragic accident. Why, why speak out now? 
Well, I think that um, there's a criminal investigation. That could be a while. Uh, there's all kinds of civil litigation. And I felt there were a number of misconceptions, most of it from sources I really wouldn't concern myself about, but a couple that I did concern myself about. With. I heard this as there's all this stuff happening to me and I need you to hear my side of the story. I need to tell you. Normally, I don't concern myself with you humans, you mortals. I don't, I don't bother myself with most of these misconceptions. But there's some that I do. And so even though there's all these reasons I shouldn't talk, which is exactly what he said, there's an ongoing criminal investigation and all this civil litigation, there's all these reasons why he should not say anything about this other than perhaps the statement that he released on Twitter of remorse and regret and and condolences, which I don't think is a tremendously damaging statement, but leave it at that. The rest of this strikes me as ego. Where there were these authoritative statements about this is what happened. The sheriff's department hasn't even released a report to the DA yet. The reason I wanted to sit down with you is because I really feel like I can't wait for that process to fit to end in February, March. I mean, I'm not asking them to speed it up for my benefit. That's ridiculous. Who would even think that? Who would even think like, oh, oh I'm, I, let me clarify that I'm not asking them to speed up the investigation so I can be relieved of this discomfort. That came to his mind. I'm not asking them to speed it up for me, but I have to tell you my side. It's just staggering to me that this, I don't know if this was the first thing said when they sat down, but it's sure portrayed in this interview as that this is the first thing that is said when they sat down. That's ridiculous. But I am saying that they're going to do what they need to do. And I wanted to come to talk to you to say that well, I would go to any lengths to undo what happened. I would go to any lengths to undo what happened. Maybe some basic gun training then, maybe some basic gun safety protocols, maybe check the weapon. I'm just, this is just me spitballing some ideas here because I'm frustrated that this happened. Because had he also checked, he would have seen that the gun was loaded when he was told that it wasn't. And then we don't end up here. So it's very interesting to me that even early on, he's disassociating or, or distancing himself from responsibility for what happened, which is just kind of staggering to me because at the end of the day, it you have the weapon in your hand. But we see over and over again in this interview where he says, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to place blame. And then at the very end of the interview, in fact, does. But he really distances himself from any responsibility. And in fact, later in the interview, aligns himself with Helena Hutchins. That's who he's like, we're, we're in this, we were in this together, she and I. And that type of um, reframing and repositioning I think shows that he really truly does not feel that he bears any responsibility for this at all. And not only will I think that that will bear out wrong civilly, and maybe he's separating himself like me as an actor person and me as a producer, but even then he gets into talking about being a producer and the fact that he was just more of a creative producer that dealt with the scripts. He wasn't a hiring producer. So 
it almost felt like he was saying these people who are hired, who he later says bear responsibility. And it's going to be interesting the way that he says that, but he says essentially they, you know, responsibility for what they've done. He's already distancing himself from the fact that he didn't hire them. Like I'm not responsible for you people. And that's a very interesting differentiation. Everything in this interview is him either getting, I feel getting upset, um, that this is happening to him, upset that this is happening in his life and him distancing himself from any responsibility at all. Even though he says things that I perceive he believes will be helpful, like I would do anything to change it. Well, no, you wouldn't do anything to change it because you didn't do what needed to be done before this happened. And if you were willing to do anything to change it, you maybe would have taken those, those brief steps in advance, but didn't. In this Next part of the interview that we're going to kind of talk about together a bit, Baldwin talks about the fact that everything he was doing was at Hutchins' direction. Now, she is, yes, the cinematographer, not the director, but it's interesting to me the way he's describing taking direction, not from the director. And the language he uses here is interesting, but again, it's this shifting of, I'm just doing what I'm told, man. Hey, I'm not even supposed to be here today. I just work here. It's it's very interesting the amount of distancing he's putting himself in that. And that could be a protection mechanism or it could be a mindfulness of criminal and civil liability that could come down the road. Or it could just be arrogance of, no, I uh, everyone told me what to do. I am in no way responsible. I am a very famous actor. I am Alec Baldwin, and this is not my fault. And I do not feel any guilt, which he also says later in this interview. So as we go through this, we're going to be going through the uh, kind of my my takes on the his demeanor in all of this. And these different clips are kind of setting that up for us and then getting into some of the contradictions I saw between what is said in the civil lawsuits and what he said in this interview, and then into the liability, potential liability, and how everything that was said plays in the civil lawsuits or could play in the criminal lawsuits. So let's get into how much direction he was taking from the cinematographer, Helena Hutchins. Pull the gun up like that and start to cock the pistol cut. I'm handed a gun and someone declares, they said, this is a cold gun. Dave Halls. The, 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 the first AD. In my years on the sets of film, hot gun meant that there was a charge in there and cold gun meant there was nothing in there. When he's saying this, this is a cold gun, what he's saying to everybody on the set is you can relax. He's talking about the first AD, Dave Halls, who's been named in a number of these civil lawsuits as well. Later in the interview, he also says that only one person on the set is responsible for handling the weapon, and that is the armor or the prop master. But it, he makes it clear that in this film, there were two people that were dealing with the gun fairly regularly. And then he was uh, the actor dealing with the gun. So three, truly, but one that was ultimately responsible, but it was like, well, if that person's not around, then I give it to the, the first AD, Dave Halls. And it's very interesting. I, I don't know. I find his tone and maybe those of you watching this versus those of you listening to it on audio only will have different takes on this. I find his tone to be a bit aggressive and defensive. And I can understand why, but he doesn't seem calm and confident. He's also saying what cold gun means is that everyone can relax. And I think that that's a miss, not just a misstatement, but a misperception 
there's still a weapon on set. So if his feeling is, oh, I was told cold gun and now I can be cavalier with this, that also shows me someone who does not respect having a gun in their hands, doesn't respect having a weapon on set. It feels cavalier to me. I mean, I, I don't know a better way to say it. it. It's just, you know, I I like personally to shoot archery, but even though, you know, the arrows I use aren't, aren't particularly... <laughs> aren't particularly um, sharp. They're definitely not arrows meant for hunting game. They are meant for target shooting, but I always am mindful that it is still a projectile traveling very, very quickly, even though it's not designed to hurt. It is still nothing that you're ever like, oh, well, we can just be relaxed. No, you have something in your hands that can do damage. You're not going to be relaxed about it. You are going to be calm and alert. And that's something that just says to me that this is an actor who has perhaps never taken weapons seriously. I mean, he also calls the magazine a clip later in this. So this is something to me who has not had the requisite training. But even if you're someone who doesn't like guns, doesn't want to go shoot guns in your free time, that's totally fine. But if this is your job, be trained in your job. I don't like, you know, Microsoft Excel. Like I, I, I just, I don't like Excel, but when I need to use Excel for work, I learn how to use Excel. And I realize that those are drastically different uh, analogies, but this is your work. If you're going to be skateboarding for a movie, you learn how to do it safely. If you're going to be horseback riding, you learn how to do it safely. And we talked about that briefly with Scott Waite, and I will link his and my conversation about kind of safety on set in relating to other topics down below, not in relation to this um, tragedy, but you learn to do the things that you need to do for your job. So you can do them not just competently, but safely, but I don't get a vibe of respect from him the entire interview. So I'm not surprised that he's like, oh, we can all relax, which probably explains what comes next is that he had a, oh, it's fine. We can all just do whatever. Let's hear the rest of this clip together. The gun is empty. That's what cold gun means. Well, cold gun means there's no charge in there. There could be dummy rounds. A dummy round looks like a real bullet, but it's completely inert. It contains no explosive charge. Which is different than a blank, which has an explosive charge. Getting back into their interview. Was it an actual rehearsal? There's some disagreement about that, whether it was a formal rehearsal at that time. This is a marking rehearsal where I'm going to show her she's standing next to the camera. She's like this. You're me. She's got a monitor here. The camera is here filming that way. She takes a monitor that his that is his monitor, the operator, and turns it toward her. It swivels. And she says to me, hold the gun lower. Go to your right. Okay, right there. All right, do that. Now show it a little bit lower. And she's getting me to position the gun. Everything is at her direction. Everything is at her direction. And you can see him um, moving his hand around, kind of showing George Stephanopoulos how he's being directed by the cinematographer as to where he's going to be holding the gun on this shot or on this, not the shot shot, but on this, yes, film shot on this scene. She's guiding me through how she wants me to hold the gun for this angle. And I, I draw the gun out and I find a mark. I draw the gun out, I find a cut. And what's really urgent is the gun wasn't meant to be fired in that angle. It's interesting to me that he says what's really urgent is that the gun wasn't meant to be fired in this angle. Um, I don't know why urgent was the word, but I think it's 
urgent for him to have everyone understand that this was blocking out the shot. And then he goes on to say, well, I should, Emily, read on, (laughs) read on um, and let him say it. So if you're shooting directly into the camera lens, you're not aiming. I'm not shooting into the camera lens. I'm shooting just off. Just off. Right. In her direction. So he keeps saying shooting, but he said he was never required to pull the trigger in this scene. So it's interesting if he adopted the word shooting from George Stephanopoulos's question, or if he he was knew he was going to pull the trigger, but he was aiming to shoot towards where she was standing just off camera and is describing that blocking. I'm holding the gun where she told me to hold it, which ended up being aimed right in below her armpit. It was what I was told. I don't know. This was a completely incidental shot, an angle that may not have ended up in the film at all. But we kept doing this. So then I said to her, now in this scene, I'm going to cock the gun. I said, do you want to see that? And she said, yes. So I take the gun and I start to cock the gun. I'm not going to pull the trigger. I I said, do you see that? She goes, well, just cheat it down and tilt it down a little bit like that. And I cock the gun. I go, can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? And she says, and then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. So just for all of you that are not weapons experts, and I am definitely not a weapons expert, but the trigger releases the hammer of a gun to fire it. What he is describing is that, and if believe there are some that are like, no, he pulled a trigger, but a gun can go off if you pull the hammer back manually, do not lock it, and then release the hammer. But this again shows someone who doesn't have a lot of either care, respect, or, or, or knowledge of weapons. And he does talk in this interview about shooting with the armor for an hour and a half and he said that most of that direction was about making sure that dummy rounds, which don't have any kind of explosiveness in them, no gunpowder in them, not like a blank, um, making sure that when you fire dummy rounds, you're mimicking the kickback that you get when you are actually firing a bullet. So for him to be surprised that when he pulled the hammer all the way back and then released it, that the gun went off is kind of mind boggling to me because that's the action that the trigger perpetuates. I am sure there are gun experts who have commented on this. I am trying to bring you my own kind of commentary, but he manipulated the gun in a way that caused it to go off. If that pulling of the hammer is found to be criminally negligent based on what he knew, should have known, was told by the armor based on her um, interview with him, then this admission that he did in fact cause the gun to fire could come back. This isn't guns... I've said it in all of the coverage of this. Guns don't just go off. Um, and he didn't just like set the gun down and it went off. He didn't just touch it and went off. He pulled the hammer back short of locking it and then released the hammer. I also wonder about what happened in this part of the blocking. He said that it's urgent to understand that I didn't put my hand on the trigger and I wasn't called to shoot, but I was called to cock the weapon in this scene and that this angle might not even be used. Maybe I'm reading into it, but it feels that he was annoyed. Like we kept doing it. We kept doing it. And so it sounded to me when he's like, can you see now? Can you see now? Can you see now? Was he saying, oh, is this, is this how you want me to stand? Is this how you want to see it? Or was it, can you see it now? Can you see it now? Can you see it now? Was it in collaboration or was it in annoyance? And he is sitting down in an interview trying to say it 
calmly. But I wonder if that's how it was said on set. In finishing this um, part of the interview with George Stephanopoulos, we're just going to round out the rest of what Baldwin had to say before we move on to some of the other uh, parts of this interview that I thought were most relevant, especially as we are determining uh, liability or potential liability. I mean, we're not saying this is who's liable. We're just we're, we're spitballing really about what the possibilities are here and how damaging this interview may be. I, I don't think um, Baldwin has done himself any favors with this interview, but I'm guessing that that's not a surprise to you by this point. I let go of the hammer, the gun, the gun goes off. At the moment, the decisive That was the moment, moment the gun went off, yeah. That was the moment the gun went off. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, no, no. I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. By the way, throughout this interview, there are multiple points where he goes, no, 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 no. I find it to be very patronizing. I don't know about you, but it's, it's, it's a very interesting way. Because there are other times in the interview when he's saying something, and he goes, no. Um, he doesn't say it every time he says no. And it just, it really stuck out to me the times when he's saying, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's almost like, how, like of course not. It, it's a very interesting way to phrase it. But I do find a lot of this interview, and I can't wait to watch some of the psychologists on YouTube and the body language experts on YouTube break down this interview because I'm wondering if they will pick out, I'm sure they will mention it, um, this, this kind of no, 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 no. It's a very interesting and and patronizing i find way to say oh no that's not accurate let's continue on that, that was the training that i had you don't point a gun at me and, and pull the trigger on day one of my instruction in this business people said to me never take a gun and go click 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 because even though it's incremental you damage the firing pin on the gun if you do that don't do that but the click 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 has nothing to do with pointing a gun at somebody and and firing it but he does get to that so you have this cold 45, you just pulled. The hammer as far back as I could without cocking the actual And gun. you're holding onto the hammer. I'm holding that, I'm just showing, I go, how about that? Does that work? You see that? Do you see that? You see that? She goes, yeah, that's good. I let go of the hammer, bang, the gun goes off. Everyone is horrified. Baldwin then goes on to detail kind of what the set was like after the uh, gun went off. And there are some things in there that do contradict what is in the civil lawsuits? And we're going to get into that right now. They're shocked. Uh, it's loud. They don't have their earplugs in. No one was, the gun was supposed to be empty. I was told I was handed an empty gun. If there were cosmetic rounds, nothing with a charge at all, a flash round, nothing. If he had looked, he would have known for sure. But he also sounds angry. And I can imagine being angry. I mean, if you're relying on someone to do their job and they've told you something's empty and it's not, it has caused a loss of life injury and and really devastation to those that were witness to this, to those that are uh, related and friends of Helena Hutchins, to Joel Souza, who I imagine will feel differently on film sets after the trauma of being shot on a film set. It has affected quite a lot of lives. So I get it, but also you can hear kind of the defensiveness and the the anger come through in parts of this interview getting back into this statement. She goes down. I thought to myself, did she faint? The notion that there was a live round in that gun 
did not dawn on me till probably 45 minutes to an hour later. 45 minutes to an hour? Well, she's laying there and I go, did she get hit by wadding? Was there a blank, sometimes those blank rounds have a wadding inside that packs, it's like, like a cloth that packs the gunpowder and sometimes wadding comes out and can hit people and it can feel like a little bit of a poke. He says, wadding can feel like a little bit of a poke. However, um, wadding stuck in the gun is what killed Brandon Lee. So I think it's interesting that he describes wadding as feeling like a like a poke. I think it can be um, much more than that, depending on the circumstance. But it's a it's downplayed here for sure. Continuing on with Baldwin's statement, he talks about what happened immediately after, and there are some contradictions here that we're going to cover. So let's hear what he has to say. No one could understand. Did she have a heart attack? Because remember. The idea that someone put a live bullet in the gun was not even in reality. Did you go up to her? Did you back away? I went away? up to her and then we were immediately we were told to get out of the building. We were forced to get out of the building. The medics came in. I mean, I stood over her for 60 seconds and she just lay there kind of in shock. Was she conscious? Uh, my recollection is yes. 911, what's the location of your emergency? We know this 911 call was placed by script supervisor, Mamie Mitchell who has since filed one of the civil lawsuits in this case. And we will talk about it, but it's not her lawsuit that brings us some of the detail that we are going to cover after we get the rest of Baldwin's description of what happened. Within 15 minutes or 20 minutes after that, the police arrived and took the church set and put the crime tape around it, the yellow tape, and forced us all to the perimeters of the parking area where we sat and waited. She was in the church and she was not taken out of the church for quite a while. In the aftermath, there was chaos and confusion. But nobody told you what happened? No, no. Did it, you it wasn't until I was in the police station. Hours later, I mean, it was like seeing aliens. It was, it was utter disbelief over the idea. It was unacceptable, the idea that it was a live round. And finally, one of the police officers at the conclusion of my interview, I was there for like an hour and a half or so, she takes her phone and she slides it across to me. She says, that's what came out of Joel's shoulder, a 45 caliber slug, it was a real bullet. I can only imagine that that was quite some time later because this indicates that Joel Souza would have already been in and possibly out of surgery, maybe not. They could have, of course, photographed a bullet uh, while he was still in surgery after it came out. But the fact that they already had this and were showing him at the police station is a very interesting um, note to me. Also, at the beginning of this, we heard Alec Baldwin say, I have been ordered to not talk about the investigation. Him talking about his interview with police is him directly talking about the investigation that someone slid a phone across the table at him and was like, this is what was taken out of Joel's shoulder. It's, it is quite a lot of talking about the investigation. Had you known that Joel had been hit? No one had any idea until that police officer, that sheriff's officer said to me, this is the slug, 45 caliber slug they took out of Joel's arm. It's also interesting to me that he notes no one had any idea. He also says that he was there for about 60 seconds and then forced out of the church. And we're going to go over that timeline in just a moment from one of these civil lawsuits. The kind of insanity-inducing agony of thinking that someone put a live bullet in the gun. So while you heard Baldwin's statement and you heard Baldwin's statement that he was there for maybe 60 seconds and then everyone was forced out of the church, but that's 
quite different than what we see in um, the loss, the first civil lawsuit that was filed from Gaffer Sventnoy. And in that lawsuit, he really describes this instant. We've gone through that um, on other content. I will link the whole thing below for my whole video going through this civil lawsuit. But for the part that matters, we're just going to go through this timing because it does, in my mind, contradict with what Alec Baldwin had to say. The lawsuit states that defendant Baldwin was positioned no more than six to seven feet from plaintiff as they were preparing and lighting the shot. What happened next will haunt plaintiff forever. As defendant Baldwin practiced his move for the scene, plaintiff saw the Colt revolver being pointed in his direction after defendant Baldwin had removed it from the shoulder holster. Suddenly and completely unexpectedly, plaintiff heard the loudest gunshot he has ever experienced on a movie set. He felt a strange and terrifying whoosh of what felt like pressurized air. He then talks about feeling gunpowder and residuals uh, residual material, something scratched his glasses, that the noises and sound muffled in both ears. He then said instinctively, plaintiff turned to his left away from the explosion, stunned and shaken by what had just happened. As he did so, he noticed Miss Hutchins on the ground holding her lower torso as Mr. Souza screamed, quote, what the fuck was that? And defendant Baldwin yelled repeatedly, what happened? Plaintiff knelt down to check on Miss Hutchins, still not sure what had just happened. There did not appear to be a wound on Hutchins' abdomen, but she exhibited considerable pain. So plaintiff helped her lay down face up and positioned his hands behind her head and back to comfort her. He cradled her head and spoke to her, trying to keep her calm, alert, and conscious. As he held her, he noticed that the hand placed behind her back was becoming wet with blood. They then say that the, or they then allege in the lawsuit that the paramedics, the production's key medic, Carolyn Schaefer, arrived within minutes. Plaintiff indicate that Hutchins had sustained a back wound, so they gently rolled her to one side so the medic could cut off her T-shirt to inspect the wound. Plaintiff saw the medic place gauze over the wound on her back, and they gently rolled her back over. They then talk a little bit more about packing the wound and go on to allege that the next 20 to 30 minutes felt like the longest of plaintiff's life as he tried to aid and comfort Miss Hutchins, watching helplessly as her consciousness faded inexorably away. When the paramedics finally arrived and took control of Miss Hutchins' care, plaintiff left the church set, suddenly sensing and mentally processing all that had just happened. So there is definitely that period of time, that 20 to 30 minutes, there isn't much of an indication that everybody was rushed out, though it's not to say it couldn't have happened, but it doesn't seem that the timing is the same from the medics coming in and it being 60 seconds. However, this is why you don't make these statements because the timing can matter when you get into not just necessarily a criminal prosecution, but also a civil case, those timing matters. In this lawsuit, it says that the medic was there within minutes. With Baldwin, he said in his interview that it was he might have been there a minute and he was rushed out. So people's memories may vary, but this is why when there's a pending investigation, making a statement is not advisable because it's going to contradict with other things and does. This also talks about the fact that when Helena Hutchins was removed and taken and airlifted, that she had already noticeably her consciously her consciousness fade her consciousness faded etc the other um lawsuit from script supervisor Mamie Mitchell talks about the fact that uh Helena Hutchins had actually changed visibly changed 
uh, color as she as she was as she was there bleeding after she was shot, and that when she was removed by helicopter, that she was uh, not not in good condition, and then pronounced uh, deceased at the hospital. But it's interesting because what Baldwin says is that when she is being uh, removed from the church after that time and being airlifted, that he's told that she's stable, which seems ludicrous to me based on the two civil lawsuits that both state things dramatically different. I can't imagine um, air medics, air paramedics that are airlifting someone saying, oh no, she's stable. I just, at this point, we know from the civil lawsuits that not only is she unconscious, but that her skin is, is taking on a pallor. And that is again, why making statements like this, where he just kind of offhandedly says, you know, I'm told that she's stable. And then it's not until I'm in the hospital. And we haven't listened to that part of the, of the interview, because we're not going to go through the whole thing, but it's these contradictions that are going to be a problem for him as he tries to defend these lawsuits. And as there is, you never know, potentially criminal liability. Before we get into the next parts of Baldwin's interview, some of which deal with his own mental health and what he's been struggling with since this happened, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor today, Cerebral. Today's Emily show has a lot of heavy topics, and we do talk about the topic of mental health on this show and others as we've been covering so many heavy topics across all of my content. But mental health isn't something you should be uh, struggling with alone. Today, we are talking about Cerebral. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. For me being ADHD, therapy is something that I have been in and out of Uh, Since I was a teen, it's something that I used to feel really stigmatized about and don't anymore and will literally tell everyone in my life and on the internet, uh, therapy's great. (laughs) Don't be embarrassed. But being able to do therapy from the comfort of your own home over the phone is so comforting to me. It just feels like all of the barriers to getting somewhere and sitting in traffic and all of the stressors. And for me, missing appointment times are removed when you are using Cerebral, which is an app-based service. But also you can fill prescriptions if they're appropriate for you and have them delivered directly to your home so you don't have to worry about it. I really think that therapy is tremendously valuable and there is no reason not to try it. For our listeners, you can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at getcerebral.com slash lawnard. Go to getcerebral.com slash lawnard for 65% off your first month. That's just a total of $30 to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. It really is No wonder that Simone Biles has partnered with Cerebral as their chief impact officer and as a partner with her in really destigmatizing mental health, particularly in elite athletics. But but it's not just elite athletes who need therapy. (laughs) Isn't it just most of us? I feel like that's the way. So be sure to support the show by using our link and support yourself by getting 65% off. Thank you, Cerebral, for partnering with me on another episode of The Emily Show. 
During the next part of his interview, Alec Baldwin talks about the criticism he received for not checking the gun, why he didn't check the gun, and the directions he was being given. Again, I think a lot of this is him distancing himself and blame shifting, but also trying to explain, I think, again, in his defense, um, why he did what he did. He seems to be very much bothered that the public doesn't understand his actions and feels this drive to explain them. People said to me, I mean, I, I got countless people online saying, you, you idiot, you never point a gun at someone. Well, unless you're told it's empty and it's the director of photography who's instructing you on, on the angle for a shot we're going to do. And she and I had this thing in common where we both thought it was empty and it wasn't. It's very interesting to me through this next segment of the interview, how he aligns himself with Helena Hutchins, the victim in this case. He says, we have this thing in common. We thought it was empty. It seems that everyone in there after the AD yelled cold gun would have presumed that, but it's, it's a very odd way to say it for me. We have this thing in common. We thought it was empty. Well, I imagine that she must have thought that if she's asking and giving direction to point a weapon in her direction, but also believing that he's not going to make the weapon go off, I believe plays into that as well. But let's hear the rest of what he has to say. And that's not her responsibility. That's not my responsibility. Whose responsibility is remains to be seen. But I well, do, there but are I, some who say you're never supposed to point a gun at anyone on a set, no matter what. Unless the person is the cinematographer who's directing me where to point the gun for her camera angle. That's exactly what happened. That day I did. For those of you listening, you can't hear the jump cut, but for those of you watching, you can see the jump cut. As he is talking about, unless it's the director of cinematography, I there is a bite to his words, which really give the impression of how he feels about this. He was told what to do. He was following directions, and it's not his responsibility. What's interesting is that uh, George Clooney has also come out and spoken about this, and George Clooney's statements on it are included as a part of this interview. Every single time I'm handed a gun on a set, every time, Mark, they hand me a gun, I look at it, I open it, I show it to the person I'm pointing it to, we show it to the crew, every yeah. single take, you hand it back to the armor when you're done, you do it again. Right. Everyone does it. Everybody knows it. How do you respond to actors like George Clooney who say that every time they were handed a gun, they checked it themselves? Well, there were a lot of people who felt it necessary to contribute some comment to the situation, which really didn't help the situation at all. I think that goes for Baldwin himself as well. You're lending a lot of comment to the situation that's very open in an investigation, and maybe it's not in your best interest to be doing this either. But I do think it's fair that other actors who have this same experience also say no. This is not how we do things, and this is not what's done. Baldwin does this quite a lot throughout this interview where he is asked a question, and not a very hard question. I don't think he was hammered in this interview. He was definitely not pressed very hard because he is asked a question, doesn't answer the question, and goes on to say what he wants to say. He bridges to something else, and Stephanopoulos never calls him back to it, or not that we see, and holds his kind of feet to it when he says, you know, well, a lot of people gave comment. It's like, well, no, a lot of actors said, this is 
basic standard safety practice and you disregarded it. And I ultimately think that the industry standard is going to matter very much in the civil lawsuits. And it can also matter in the criminal lawsuits. Is it criminal negligence if the industry standard is that the actor would also check and he did not check? Then perhaps you have a situation where that is enough for criminal negligence or holding back the hammer just short of cocking the gun where the hammer is then locked into position and can only fired by pulling the trigger. Is that criminal negligence? Is that against what he's been told? And he's now said these two different things in this interview. Well, you know, not everybody needs to chime in, but that's not what I was told. But we're also learning that this might be industry standard. And he talks about being on film sets where they open up the weapon and demonstrate to him that the weapon is cleared and that that was not done on this set. And we know that from other sources as well. Baldwin is then asked, what is the actor's responsibility in this? Kind of addressing the criticism that he should have checked the gun, that he shouldn't check the gun. And he definitely answers. And in the beginning of his answer, he says, well, I think it's changed now. Everything's changed. What the responsibility would have been before this happened and after this happened is now different. Um, again, distancing, distancing, I think, uh, responsibility and connection to this incident. But then he goes on to really frame what he sees his responsibility to be. And you might agree with him and you might not. I'm actually, and totally, every time I say, please let me know, I'm genuinely curious and want to know what your thoughts are about Alec Baldwin's answer here. When you say, what is the actor's responsibility? The actor's responsibility is to do what the prop armorer tells him to do. And we did not have a problem. I mean, I understand there was an accidental discharge at one point on the set of a blank round, but we did not have a problem for me until that day. We did not have a problem, except for that one problem that we had, but we didn't have a problem for me. I didn't have a problem. I mean, there was just that, there was that one misfire, but I didn't have any problems. And again, this is a critical part of the interview when we're talking about potential liability. He is now confirming that he was aware that there was a misfire on set. And we have not seen that from him anywhere. He is now saying, I was aware that there was a previous misfire on set. So if he is aware that there was a previous misfire on set, what was done? Were there safety meetings? Were, were there questions asked? Was it investigated how that misfire happened? Was the weapon investigated to make sure that it was safe? Did they contact the, the prop house that provided the weapons and said, this weapon misfired, get something else over here. We're not using this again. What happened next? Or was it, oh, it misfired. Cute. Moving on. We don't have time. The clocks are enemy. It's a low budget film. He's admitted knowledge of the previous problem, which is going to go into not just potentially civil liability, but into potential criminal liability. Again, the standard we're looking at is negligence. So was this criminal negligence, not just the going against industry standards potentially, but also the potential that you now know there are previous problems, were they addressed or were they not addressed? And we're gonna finish out what he has to say here before we move on. Everything gets slowed down as a pruder film ask here. And the issue with that is, is there's only one question to be resolved, only one. That is, where did the live round come from? 
there are other questions here. It's it's what is the extent of your liability as a producer? What's the extent of your liability as an actor? That's also a, a very big question here. But yes, I think it is fair to say that the main question here is how did live rounds get onto this set? But then it's whose responsibility and what responsibility do you have? Those are also questions. And it's interesting because I've interjected like 17,000 times while we were talking about this. But the question from George Stephanopoulos that ended up being answered with, ultimately, there is one question here. And it is, how did a live bullet get on set or a live round get on set? Stephanopoulos's question was, what is the actor's responsibility? He didn't ask him, what is your responsibility, which I think is fair. He did it in almost a third person way. But what is the actor's responsibility? And the end of that answer was, but how did the live round get on set? Further distancing himself. But in that answer to further distance himself, he admitted knowledge that there had been problems beforehand. And that is going to be a much larger problem than I think he realizes. And I'm sure it's a problem his lawyers who I can only imagine advised him against doing this, would have said, uh, no, what we're not going to talk about is, is this. And this is why you don't give interviews. Because to Alec Baldwin, it, it almost seems like a throwaway sentence. Like, we'd, I didn't have any problems. I mean, yes, there was an accidental discharge, but I didn't have any problems. Well, you've confirmed that you knew. And knowledge plays into negligence. Baldwin does comment on the pending civil lawsuits in the next part of this interview after he's talking about um, former President Trump commenting on this and and other others making comments about this in the media. But it's coming off the tail of that where he, he shifts topics. And it's there don't seem to be any cuts here. It doesn't seem to be in response to the question. It seems to be a shift of, I'm going to talk about this now. Which also brings me to two civil suits that were filed which I find odd because those two people are lunging toward making sure their suits are filed before the husband files his suit. They couldn't wait until Matthew, on behalf of his son, filed his suit So first. you expect Matthew to file a suit? Oh, but how could it be otherwise? His wife was killed as a result of someone's, uh, I mean, I don't want to say negligence. It's not for me to use that word. That's a legal term. But, you know, something happened here that resulted in his wife's death. It's called negligence. I'll say it. I'll I'll say it. Negligence happened. This doesn't happen without negligence. A live round doesn't get into a gun without negligence unless it's intentional. And even the district attorney in Santa Fe has said there is nothing to indicate that this was anything other than an accident, that this was unintentional, which means it was negligent. Um, Because if it's not negligent, then this doesn't happens. So I'm, I'm very comfortable saying there was negligence. Whose negligence it was is really the question. I, I mean, how a live bullet got onto set's a big question, but I think that question goes hand in hand with whose negligence is it. But how interesting it is that he's almost framing those who have filed civil suits as somehow being at fault. They're lunging in front of Helena Hutchins' husband. It's almost an how dare they statement. And both of them are suing him personally. To me, it seems that he's a little bit pissed about being sued. And it's like, it's almost trying to reframe those individuals. They're lunging in front of a widow and his, a widow, apology. They're lunging in front of a widower and his child. How dare they? How dare they? 
Why couldn't they wait? It's very, very interesting that he wants to bring this up and he wants to talk about it. And it seems that he is displeased, but these are people who are suing him civilly and he is going to have to deal with those lawsuits. I don't think he's happy um, with the allegations that he was playing Russian roulette with someone's life. And that is an allegation made by a script supervisor, Mamie Mitchell, in her lawsuit. He's entitled to something as far as I'm concerned. I would be stunned if Matthew, on behalf of his son, did not file some kind of civil suit against the production with its insurers and so forth like that. But Likely to name you as well, a producer? Well, I think that all the producers will be named. The look on Baldwin's face. It's like, well, I think all the producers will be named. Likely to name you. He's like, huh? You're the one holding the gun. This isn't a shock. It remains to be seen which producers have the responsibility for hiring the people involved. Separating himself out from it. Matthew doesn't blame you in any way for Helena's death. I, I can't speak for Matthew. I can't. I Good. Can't. When, I, when I met with him, he was there. We went to dinner with his son. We went to the memorial service together. Uh, the crew had a little memorial service for her before we left, which was very beautiful and very simple. And uh, I've communicated with him a couple times since then, but I do believe he's uh, gone off in a direction where he's not going to communicate with people at the advice of his lawyer right now. And I think that that's appropriate advice. When lawyers say don't talk, it's fair to uh, to a not talk. Yeah, you, you want to follow the advice of counsel in that. I tried to save her life. This is... I, I believe I called Serg Sergey because S E R G E I pro, is I pronounce things wrong. But Serg Sergey Sventnoy is the uh, they have it as chief of lighting, but in the lawsuit it describes him as a gaffer. Same same. He is now speaking about trying to save her. This looks like a press conference uh, with his attorneys that have filed this lawsuit, and then they talk a little bit about these lawsuits in these coming clips. Serge Spetnoy, the film's chief of lighting, filed the first civil lawsuit against the production company and the crew members who officials say handled the gun, including Alec Baldwin. He alleged they failed to implement appropriate safety standards and measures on the Rust movie production. The second civil suit from script supervisor Mamie Mitchell also alleged there were warning signs of the dangerous conditions that existed on set. The attorneys for one of the first script supervisor, Mamie Mitchell, who filed one of the suits, said Mr. Baldwin chose to play Russian roulette when he fired a gun without checking it and without having the armor do so in his presence. His behavior and that of the producers on Rust was reckless. How do you respond? In court, you respond in court. You don't respond in an ABC interview to George Stephanopoulos. I think it's fair of him to answer the question. Alec Baldwin put himself in this situation by sitting down for the interview. But how do you respond? Through my lawyers should be the answer that comes next, and it's not. There are two people that filed civil suits so far. And one of them walked up to me outside the church, probably within 15 or 20 minutes of the event itself, and put their hand on me and said, you realize that you have no responsibility for what's happened here, don't you? Was this Serge? No comment. Interesting that this is where he chooses a no comment. But again, I feel like he is shifting the question almost to attack those that filed civil lawsuits against him. That's how it that's how it's perceived to me. And I don't know if it will play well down the road in these civil lawsuits, because if I was the attorneys for those two, I would be 
very displeased uh, with this bit of the interview and the way he tries to shift blame to those that are suing him. One of those two, and now that person is suing me. Now, again, they're entitled to change their mind. More importantly, they're entitled to sit down with a lawyer who will convince them to change their mind. Always blame the lawyers. It's just, it's a solid strategy. Note the sarcasm, but also sometimes lawyers do ruin everything. Surge, for example, this is the only thing I'll say about someone specifically. He was her dear friend. He was a very close friend of hers. He was her dear friend. And in his lawsuit talks about holding her in the last moments of her life after she was shot at work. So let's maybe not go on an ABC interview and try to say, well, some lawyers got a hold of him and that's why he's suing. Let's just not do that, Alec Baldwin. And yet he's chosen to file his lawsuit in advance of Matthew's suit. Which and there's only so much money. Well, if you get into settlements alone, there's a pool of the insurance money. There's a couple different policies. There's a pool of money that's available that is finite. Now, you could access more money somehow if you sue people individually and find them individually. Like you. Like how they're suing you individually. I just found the filing of the two lawsuits civil lawsuits in advance of Matthew filing his lawsuit, I found that to be um, unsettling. But this is what he finds unsettling, the filing of the lawsuits. The next part of the interview has a little clip um, regarding A.D. Halls. That's the one who said that the gun was cold to hand it to Baldwin. And then Baldwin's, I think, shifting of responsibility. And even though he says he's not going to call out negligence, I think in this part, he does. Paul's also told investigators he didn't know there were any live rounds in the firearm. But his attorney has said it wasn't Hall's responsibility to confirm whether the gun was loaded. Let me just say something else also, by the way, which I think is important, which is that I don't want to see anybody suffer unnecessarily. I feel terrible what's happened to Hannah. I do. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is the armorer and lead prop master on the set. I feel horrible what happened to Halls. I do. I mean, I mean, this is something where, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, someone put, we're, the, the, the investigation's going to find out, but someone put a live bullet in a gun, a bullet that wasn't even supposed to be on the property. And this is the thing I hope that the sheriff's department doesn't give up on, that they follow this to the ends of the earth. Where did that bullet come from? Somebody brought live rounds, plural, onto the set of the film. And one of them ended up in that gun. And if the, and if the bullets didn't come on the property, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Now, at the same time, I don't want to see Hannah suffer and Hall suffer and all these people suffer the agony of having to face what they're responsible for, what they did. The agony of having to face the responsibility for what they did. I don't want to see them face the agony of facing the responsibility for what they did. That is what Baldwin says of the AD and the armorer, what they did and takes no responsibility for himself. We're going to listen to that part again. Now, at the same time, I don't want to see Hannah suffer and Halls suffer and all these people suffer the agony of having to face what they're responsible for, what they did. It makes me sick because, you know, I myself, I mean, I, I'm married. I got six kids. I want to just live my life in peace. He shifts topics quite a bit there, but 
is very clear to say what they did. We're going to get to the last part that I'm sharing with you of his thoughts before we kind of wrap up liability and responsibility. But the last bit of this is him talking about why he doesn't feel any guilt. And I'm just going to say in this next part of the interview, it follows Stephanopoulos asking Baldwin, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Baldwin has already shifted to talking about him, to talking about how this has impacted his life as the taking the life of someone else, I, I imagine would impact absolutely anyone. Um, and he, he is talking about that impact. And he does mention how, if he did feel guilt, how he doesn't know if he could overcome that guilt. So a little bit of a trigger warning by way of the fact that he will uh, mention ideations of self-harm, sort of. And I think that it was interesting that that's where this question led. And I would love to know your thoughts on that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I think back and I think of what could I have done. Your emotions are so clearly so right there on the surface. You felt shock. You felt anger. You felt sadness. Do you feel guilt? No, no. I feel that there is, I, I feel that, that, that uh, someone is responsible for what happened. And I can't say who that is, but I know it's not me. I mean, I, I, honest to God, if I felt that I was responsible, I might have killed myself if I thought I was responsible. I, I don't say that lightly. Perhaps I'm cynical, but part of me feels that that came to mind for him to say, I don't feel responsible. Stop trying to hold me responsible. And it could just be cynical, but that's how that part of the interview felt. Someone's responsible, but it's not me. Well, he's already said who he thinks is responsible. I don't know if he's already forgotten that that's what he said, but he has already said, you know, um, I feel, I feel terribly that A.D. Hulls and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed have to uh, deal with what they've done and what they're responsible for. So where that fell in the way that this was edited, I don't know. But he's like, I can't say who's responsible. But you did. You've made it very clear that you do not think it's you. And you have said that you believe it is the AD and the armorer who might also bear responsibility. But that doesn't mean that it is exclusively their responsibility because at the end of the day, the person who had the gun in their hands was Alec Baldwin. And I think that his admission that he knew that there had been a prior misfire, that he was pulling the hammer back on the gun as far as it could go without safely locking it and then released it, causing the gun to fire, if that's what is found by the investigation to have happened. And the fact that he blame shifts throughout this interview is not going to play well for him in these, not just the wrongful death lawsuit down the road, but in the other civil suits saying, you knew the set was unsafe. Well, he has now admitted in an interview that he knew the set was unsafe. You manipulated the gun, causing it to be discharged. Well, he's now on film saying that he did that. So after this interview, the DA in Santa Fe said that they have not ruled anything out. We will see if criminal liability for the 
um, unintentional homicide or the negligent homicide comes up. We will see what happens when that investigation is closed one way or the other. The civil liability is going to take some time. It was very interesting to me that the end of this was him stating that he does not feel any guilt because he is not responsible. It felt very much like, again, as I'm repeating myself, he's saying, don't hold me responsible. And we will see because there is responsibility here for Alec Baldwin and there will be responsibility certainly as a producer, we will see what responsibility comes as an actor, but completely disavowing any responsibility in this. I wonder how that feels for not just Helena Hutchins' family, who hopefully didn't watch this, but for all those on set that were involved to see the one of the producers and the, the star of the film saying, I'm in no way responsible for this. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I know what my thoughts are. And uh, I didn't come away from this interview feeling any kind of way towards Alec Baldwin except outraged. And I wonder if that's how you felt too. And if it's not, I would really like to hear what your perspective is and what your takeaways were. So please share them with me on social media. I love to have a conversation. If, if you think I've, I'm too cynical, Emily, you've spent too much time doing the lawyer things. I think you're cynical. And I, it's not that I don't think he feels grief and and sorrow over this it's that taking responsibility bit that really does it for me so let me know on social at the emily d baker thank you for being here thank you for being a law nerd i think this is probably kind of a long one let me know if you enjoyed the clips being interspersed and me sharing my thoughts on them with you and how there are key moments in this that will come up for potential criminal charges but definitely in these civil lawsuits and, and again, if your only takeaway is when there are things pending, you don't go on national television and give an interview, then maybe we've all learned something. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. Raise a glass and say it with me. Hopefully right the first time. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. And I will see you in the next one.